Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Uh, In our passage today, Paul is going to use an illustration for us to demonstrate what is the body of Christ. Uh, We have just finished um, a section in 1 Corinthians 12 talking about different kinds of strengths or gifts, as we call them, that God gives his people. Uh, And some of the examples of some of these gifts that Paul mentions in the passage right before our passage today, uh, some of these gifts include wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, prophecy, tongues, interpretation of tongues, and discernment. There are other places in scripture uh, like Romans 12 and Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4 where we can find other lists of gifts, examples of gifts that God gives to his people. And yet we see as Paul finishes in verse 11 right before our passage today that all of them are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And so with this, we're going to read verses 12 through 31. This is 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 31. And this is God's word for us today. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will last forever. Would you pray with me? 
Father, we are thankful that the same Spirit who inspired Paul to write these words is present here today, helping us to understand your word. And so Lord, as we come to your word, we submit ourselves. We submit ourselves to you. For we know that you are good. We know that you are a God who works in this world and in our hearts. And even if we're having a hard time believing that right now, Lord, we pray, would you grant us by your spirit a sense of your love and a sense of your presence through your word today. Help us, O oh God, we ask. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. The irony of today's passage, uh, one body in many parts, is not lost on me that one part of the body is seeming to be leading the entire worship service. But uh, there are a lot of parts that you don't see that are going into this service. Some of them are sitting back there. Some of them, as we had our earlier service, were outside. And uh, so there are many parts at work. Uh, as we consider these words this morning, uh, I came across a quote. Uh, it's a quote that was given 30 years ago, uh, almost 30 years ago, and it was following a week of violent protesting in one of the largest cities in our nation. These words may, has, may as well have been spoken yesterday. And here's the quote. I'm not going to say who who gave the quote, but I'm going to just give you the quote. The quote is this. People, I just want to say, you know, can we all get along? Can we all get along? You don't have to spend much time watching the news or scrolling the Twitter feed or trolling on Facebook to see that we are still, even today, a divided nation. We are a nation in need of unifying. And this message of unity is one that we can track with. Uh, just this past week, I had the opportunity to sit at breakfast with a couple of our deacons. Uh, I'm so thankful for our deacons. That, that's a new gift that we have this year. We installed our deacons back in February. And uh, we have some men who feel gifted to serve and, and to uh, show compassion and to think about the needs of our body and the needs of the church and our community. And one of the great honors I have is to meet with them and to think through these things with them and to pray with them about it. And this past week, we were sitting down to breakfast, having our monthly deacons meeting and talking about these things. And I looked up at the place where we were eating and I saw a TV screen. And on the TV screen, though I couldn't hear it, was a political advertisement. Anybody tired of those yet? Yes, I see some hands. A political advertisement. Couldn't hear a word that was spoken, but I saw in big letters across the bottom of the screen, unite for a better America. Isn't that what we're longing for right now? Unity, peace, harmony. Isn't that what our country is longing for? Unity, peace, and harmony. It's not just out there though, friends. It's in here too. Isn't that what our churches are longing for right now? Unity and peace and harmony. And even to take it one step further, isn't that what we are longing for in our homes 
and even in our own lives is unity and peace and harmony. When we look at Corinth, the city of Corinth in the first century, it's interesting to note that there are some striking resemblances to our day. There was tremendous cultural pressure to be showy and well-spoken and put together and to have it all figured out or at least appear like you have it all figured out. Kind of sounds familiar. Anyone been on Facebook lately? To the people of Corinth, the good life was when you reached the higher successes of financial wealth and self-sufficiency. They valued the self-made person and sometimes in order to get there, you had to trample on others, discrediting them or dividing over tribal loyalties, cults of celebrity, you might say. To put it simply, the people of Corinth were anything but a unified community. See, it makes sense then that the followers of Jesus in Corinth were struggling with these same things. They were struggling with disunity, with division, with discrimination against one another. It makes sense that they saw certain gifts or certain roles or certain strengths or abilities as more valuable than others. We're not that unlike them, are we? We too are tempted to assign greater value over certain roles and gifts within the church and even outside of the church. We too are tempted to divide over differences. We too are tempted to trample on one another in order to promote our own viewpoint. Anybody been on Facebook lately? It's coming a common theme. Anyone have a particular viewpoint about what we should be putting on our faces or not? How are we handling those differences? Any of you who've been around the church for more than a few minutes, you can probably attest to this. The church is just as prone to divide as the world is. The church is just as prone to trample on one another as the world is. The church is just as prone to discriminate against those who are different. And it's sad. And it's tragic. It's a tragic irony. I'm sorry to say, and I confess to you today that I have contributed to the tragedy of division in the church as well. So what are we to do? Is there any hope for unity in our world, in the church, in our lives? I think so. But I'd I'd like to suggest that true unity has less to do with the what and more to do with the who. And what I mean by that is to say that true unity is less about unifying over particular social causes or particular political ideologies or a particular philosophical system. True unity has much more to do with unifying around a particular person. And I'd like to suggest to you this morning that true unity, I'm not just talking about unity in the church, I mean true unity that that goes across all time for all the world in all places. True unity is only possible when people unite in following Jesus. Why do I say this? Well, if we look at verse 12, we see what Paul says. He says, for just as the body is one and has many members, 
So he's using this picture of the human body. So if you need help visualizing, just look down at your hands and feet. You can visualize what Paul's saying. He says, for just as the body, the human body has many members, many parts, and all the members, all the parts of your body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. You see, Christ and his church or his people, those who follow him, those who trust him, those who've been called out of darkness into light, Christ and his people, his followers, are the body. One unified body. Colossians 1 says, and he is the head of the body. So we don't need to fight about who's in charge. Jesus is in charge. He's the head. Now it's interesting to note about this is that it doesn't say that you could be one. It doesn't say that you can think about oneness and strive for oneness. In fact, it says that you are one in Christ. Friends, we are already one unified body. Even when we disagree about things, we are already one unified body. We may not be living that out, but the fact of the matter is, for followers of Jesus, you are one unified body with one another and with Christ. It's a present reality for those who unite following Jesus. Well, how is this possible? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. And I'm going to answer three questions that Paul brings up in the passage. The first is, how is true unity possible? What does true unity look like, secondly? And third, what does true unity call me to do? What does it call us to do? Well, how is it possible? How is true unity possible? Well, in verse 13, we find Paul write this, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. We'll notice that the spirit of God alone brings unity. We'll notice that there's only one spirit. We're we're not talking about many different spirits. We're not talking about our spirit. We're talking about the one spirit of Christ who has been sent to, as Jesus says in John 16, to guide us into truth, to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment and to help us. Jesus calls him a helper. And you'll notice what his work is. We, we see two aspects of his work here. The first one is that we are baptized by the spirit into one body. Now water baptism symbolizes what this is talking about. This is talking about spiritual baptism. This is talking about when a person who is spiritually dead, what we believe the the Bible says that when we are born, when we are conceived even, when we are conceived, that we are conceived in sin, that we have a what's called a sinful nature. And that in this sinful nature, the Bible says that we are spiritually dead. And I, dead people can't do anything for themselves. We read earlier in Romans 3, no one is righteous, no, not one. That is our condition when we begin in this world. And what the Spirit of God does is the Spirit of God, which blows, it's, John 3 uses this illustration of he blows like the wind. We don't know where he's going, but he blows. And as he blows and moves into dead hearts, dead people, spiritually dead people, he makes them alive, regenerates their hearts, gives them life. The Bible 
calls this regeneration or new birth. And so what we're talking about first is that the Spirit of God takes dead people and baptizes them, cleanses them, empowers them to be alive people. You'll notice that the Spirit's work in us doesn't have anything to do with one's ethnicity, one's skin color, one's socioeconomic class. You'll notice Paul says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks. So that's a reference to all people, all kinds of people. That encompasses every single person in the entire world. This every kind of person in the entire world is included. Slaves or free, this is regardless of your socioeconomic class, regardless of your education, regardless of whether you are on the bottom of the, 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 the rung or you're at the very top of the ladder. What we see here is that the spirit of Jesus is more inclusive than anybody else in the world. The spirit of Jesus does not discriminate in the way that we do. So the first work is that the Spirit baptizes us into one body, brings us together to where we have a new creation. We are uh, with a new identity. We are His. And then the Spirit does a second work, which happens at the same time, but it's ongoing, you might say. And it says in verse 13 that all were made to drink of one Spirit. This, this word for made to drink can also carry a, a sense of, of being watered. You can look out and maybe see some sprinklers. They're probably not going right now, but some days you can see sprinklers going out and those are irrigating. They're watering the ground. This idea of being made to drink of one spirit is that we are being saturated with the spirit. And as that spiritual saturation occurs, fruit comes out. Okay? It reminds me a little bit of my papa's garden. In the summertime when I was growing up, we would make a 12-hour drive from St. Louis, Missouri. We lived in a suburb outside St. Louis down to Simpsonville, South Carolina. Anyone ever been to Simpsonville, South Carolina? Hey, all right. Uh, Simpsonville, it's outside of Greenville, South Carolina. And we would pile into the car. Uh, there'd be five boys, one mom, one minivan, no seats in the back. We used to travel this way. Anyone else travel this way as kids? No seats in the van. Yes, thank you, yep. And my mom would put down masking tape all over the, you know, the floor of the van, and we had our square. You could bring anything you wanted to in your square, but it had to stay in your square. If it came out of your square, mom was really good at being able to hit you with her shoe without even looking. Just like this. I'm not sure how it happened. Well, you can imagine it was a hot and smelly and stinky uh, and, and uh, you know, food like chips everywhere, all the way down to South Carolina. When we would pull into Papa and Grandma's driveway, this hot blacktop driveway in South Carolina, where it was, you know, 100% humidity and 95 degrees, we'd open up the door and it would be the sweetest smell all summer long. It would be the smell of Papa's garden. I'd smell the sweet corn and the tomatoes and the green beans and the fresh green peppers. You see, every spring, Papa would choose 
uh, particular seeds. He would handpick these seeds and then he would go out into his garden and he would plant them in a particular place throughout the entire garden. You know, corn over here, a little bit of green beans over there, tomatoes over there, threw a few jalapenos and he liked things a little spicy, you know, over here, peppers over there, squash over there, all throughout the half acre garden. And then he would see that the field was properly saturated with water. Most often this was rain. Sometimes the garden hose had to come out and get that sprinkler out. You can imagine it, can't you? And as the water fell down, the ground saturated and the seeds took in the water. They took in the warmth of the sun. They took in the dirt and the nutrition and upgrew these plants And the seeds that became plants then bore fruit. And together, all of these plants and all of this fruit forms one garden. There weren't 55 different gardens. Each plant was its own garden. No, they were all one unified garden. No single plant by itself made the garden. They were all the garden. And they were all saturated saturated from the same source. Friends, if you are a follower of Jesus, do you, do you know that you've been handpicked by the master gardener? Do you know that you've been washed clean by the spirit of God? Do you know that you've been equipped with gifts and abilities and strengths? Do you know that you're part of God's garden? You have been saturated with the spirit. You are included. And because of these truths, you are united to Jesus. You are united to one another. You've been brought in. Imagine what it would look like in our world if followers of Christ began living as if we've been brought in. We're not on the outside. We're on the inside. We're part of a much bigger kingdom than the one of this world. And because of this, we are unified. The body of Christ is unified, even if it doesn't seem like it. Now, this might be hard to wrap your mind around. It is for me too. Some of you have been hurt by the church. Some of you have witnessed division in the church. Some of you maybe have written off church altogether, and I'm thankful that you're here today, giving it another shot. I understand these concerns. I understand the frustration. I understand the wounds. I've been there. I can relate to it. However, for those of you who've been wounded by the church or you've written off church, would you be willing to consider two things? The first is this. The church is made up of sinner saints. The church is made up of sinner saints. This means that we are sinners saved by grace. And on this side of eternity, we're still wrestling with the brokenness and the sin that remains, as Paul says. The flesh, he sometimes calls it. And yet, at the same time, in God's sight and in one another's sight, we're to be seen as saints, as set apart, as holy, as his people. You see, when a bunch of sinner saints get together, we can expect a measure of pain. We can expect a measure of hurt. We can expect a measure of unmet expectations. And I don't say this to make an excuse, but rather to point out the reality that even on our best day, friends, we are still desperately in need of God's forgiving grace. Right? 
Amen. Which leads to the second thing. It's only the message of the gospel that offers any foundation for unity. We can look at political candidates, we can look at philosophical systems all day long, but nothing outside of Jesus can actually provide a foundation for unity, real, lasting, true unity. You see, at the core of the gospel message is the truth that even in the midst of our destructive tendencies and our rebellious natures, Christ still died for his people. And he provided a way for us to be forgiven and have renewed life. Imagine what it would look like if we began living every day as if I've been saved by grace. I don't deserve it, but I've been saved. I trust Jesus. Maybe to go back to the the gardener and the seed analogy one more time, when we who deserve to be cast to the birds and eaten up, when we remember that we've been handpicked by the master gardener, planted in his field, protected by his son Jesus, and nourished by his spirit that saturates us with his goodness, then we can be living, uh, begin living as a unified garden, as a unified body of Christ. See, true unity is only possible because of spirit-saturated oneness in Jesus. Now, does this mean we all have to look the same? All have to talk the same, all have to act the same, we all have to like the same sports team, we all have to, you know, listen to the same music on the radio, we all have to read the exact same translation of the Bible, we all have to read the same commentary. Is that, is that what this means? What does true unity look like? Well, Paul gives us an answer to that in verse 14. He says, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And he goes into this really, I think it's kind of funny. I, I don't, he's not meaning to be funny, but I, I think that it, it just, if you think about the analogy, it becomes absurd. He goes into this, you know, this conversation that the body is having with itself. You know, it seems like a children's book to me, but I, anyway, so here's, here's how I imagine it in my head. This is verses 15 and, and, and 16. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. That would be absurd, says Paul. And then he says, if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. No, he says, that wouldn't make any sense. That would not make it any less part of the body. See, what Paul's trying to say here is just because you might be unhappy with your place in the body, I'm not this or I'm not that, so I must not belong, doesn't make you any less part of the body. To put it a different way, one's discontent with their role does not discredit your position. One's discontent with how God has gifted you and the strengths he's given you doesn't discredit your position. You still belong. Just because in a given moment you may not feel like part of the body doesn't make you any less part of the body. Your sense of being out of place doesn't make you out of place. See, what Paul goes on to say then is that the diversity of the parts is in fact what makes it an actual functioning body. You know, he says in verse 17, think about it. If the whole body were an eye, all you have is an eye, you're just an eye, how are you going to hear anything, right? If your whole body is an ear, how are you going to smell anything? Instead, says Paul in verse 18, God has arranged 
the members in the body. He's arranged the parts. He's, a, he's arranged how he's gifted us, how he's equipped us. And each one of them, as he chose, he's doing the work. He's the master gardener. He's planting this seed over here and this seed over here and that seed over there. And all of these parts together make a beautiful picture of a unified body. Commenting on these verses, one of my uh, professors in seminary, Dr. Kistemacher, writes this. As the beauty of the human body is brought out by the variety of its parts... So the body is beautiful because it has a lot of different parts. If, it, if, if the whole body were a hand, come on, that's boring. But you have all the parts. That makes the body beautiful. And as the beauty of the human body is brought out by the variety of its parts, so the glory of the body of Christ appears in the diversity of its members. Speaking of beauty in the body, this reminds me of a conversation I had with my three-year-old daughter. She's been noticing a particular body part of mine. I'm going to put it in quotes because I don't know if it counts as a body part, but here, I mean, I'm being told that every part of my body is part of my body. So I'm going to put it in quotes, though. It's normally a body part that you don't see very often uh, unless sometimes uh, it needs grooming. I'm not talking about my toenails. Strange as it might sound, my daughter is currently fascinated with my nose hairs. Yes, she is. I left a few long for you today, just so you could, I'm just kidding. You're all going to, the kids are trying to get a look right now, aren't you? This is how the conversation goes. It, it, we've had this conversation, I think, three times. Usually around the dinner table, Hope sits next to me. Sometimes I grab her and I tickle her and she looks up at my face. And of course, she gets a shot right up my nose. And she goes, this is Hope, she's three. Daddy, you have hair in your nose. That's silly. Across the table is Graham, who's five, and he says, Dad, why did God put hair in your nose? And then he does this. Do I have hair in my nose? You know. And then Ross, who's 10 and the rational, you know, one in the family says, guys, you have hair in your nose because it keeps dust from getting in your body. Here's the point. God put those nose hairs there. It's a part of my body. They're there for a purpose. According to my 10-year-old, it's so that I don't have dust in me. I don't know if he's right. But the point is this. The nose hairs, though not very appealing, not aesthetically pleasing to the eye, they are just as much a part of the body. Friends, in order to be a unified body, followers of Jesus are necessarily diverse. And this is evidence of God's sovereign grace. You see, for followers of Jesus, unity does not mean sameness. It does not mean conformity. It doesn't mean becoming like everyone else. That's actually what our culture wants to tell you. Our culture wants to tell you that we value diversity, but only if you conform to our way of thinking. Jesus says, no, 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 in the body of Christ, you can have true diversity without having to be all the same. And in that, you can actually have unity, he says. See, true unity looks like a beautifully diverse community uniting to follow Jesus. That's what it looks like a beautifully diverse community uniting to follow Jesus. And so, what does this mean for you? It means embrace the place that God has put you in this world. Embrace the way he's gifted you and use your gifts for his glory and for the good of others. Introverts, embrace your introversion. 
We need introverts in the church. Extroverts, embrace your extroversion. Don't be ashamed of wanting to talk to every last person, including trees. That's okay. Embrace that. Men who like to fix things, thank you. Women who like to bake cookies, my office is right over there. Children who are whizzes at social media and technology, we need your help. I need your help. Moms who are gifted homemakers, thank you. Keep it up. Teachers, we praise God for you. People who work in the workplace and work hard, thank you. People who serve in the nursery, thank you. Men and women who are currently single, thank you for giving more attention to the things of God than those of us who are married can. Please don't despise your role. Don't despise your gift. Don't despise your ability. Instead, from right where you are, ask yourself, how can I use my gift for the good of others and for the glory of God? You don't have to become like somebody else. You don't have to become a pastor. You don't have to become a musician, although I could certainly use some help, you know, one body, one part today. Instead, use your gifts for the good of others and for the glory of God. And when you do that, when we use this diversity, this variety of parts, we actually are more unified and we give God more glory. Now, how are we to to continue on in this? Well, this is this third question. What does true unity call us to do? And I've kind of already alluded to that a little bit. I got rained out in the first service, so I kind of had to just close the sermon down right there. What does true unity call us to do, though? You see, for the folks in Corinth, the highest gifts were those showy, outspoken, upfront gifts, uh, prophecy, tongues, probably the gifts of wisdom and knowledge were, were held in high regard because they were a culture that valued uh, vi- uh, wisdom and, and, and knowledge and discernment. Those behind-the-scenes gifts like service, mercy, faith, discernment, they were most likely undervalued as they sometimes are even today. Those more quiet gifts were sort of pushed to the bottom. And as a result, in Corinth, there was a certain hierarchy of gifts that was created. Those who had the upfront gifts were treating those with the more behind-the-scenes gifts as less important or unnecessary. In some ways, this was a reflection of their culture. And in other ways, this was a reflection of one of the oldest lies in the book, And the lie is this. It's the lie of self-sufficiency. You guys ever believed the lie of self-sufficiency? You see, ever since the beginning of time, human beings have been deceived by this idea that the good life comes to those who think they don't need anything or need anyone else. To those who are self-sufficient, self-made, independent. That's the lie that our world tells us. And it takes various forms in our world. In Buddhism, it's called nirvana. In philosophy, it could be called enlightenment thinking. And in America, it's called the American dream. Of course, Paul has something to say about this idea of self-promotion and self-sufficiency, especially as it relates to unity in the body of Christ. Look with me at verse 21. He says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Notice he doesn't say you should not, you ought not. He says you cannot say this. It's not possible for you to look at one part of the body and say, I don't need you. Nor the head to the feet, I don't need you. There is no such thing as self-sufficiency. And this is a good thing. 
He goes on in verse 22 and says, On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts, we uh, are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. So he's sort of saying, look, you all know what he's talking about. We have unmentionables and we cover those up. We dress them. We give them greater honor by covering up our unmentionables. You guys don't want to see my chest hair. It's unmentionable, right? So I cover it up. I give it honor by covering it up. Okay, that's what he's meaning. We, the things that we sort of give, we give honor, greater honor to these less honorable things. And just like we do that with our bodies, we should do the same thing in the body of Christ. Every person in the church is valuable, irreplaceable, and of great worth. That's what he's saying. And here's the beauty of this. See, the lie of our culture says that in order to be indispensable, in order to be important, you have to be self-sufficient. You have to stand alone. You have to be strong. And what Jesus is trying to tell you is, no, no, no. In order to be indispensable, you need to lean into one another. You need one another. And this is good. Don't live on your own. It's not possible. God has composed it this way because He's good. And so true unity calls us to grace-filled dependency. Not self-promoting independency, but grace-filled dependency where we live as sinner saints, filled by God's spirit, filled with his grace, and we are intentionally dependent upon one another. This is why Around here at Jacob's Well, community groups, spiritual intimacy, as we call it, small groups, are such a big deal. Our faith is a community project, we say. You cannot grow in faith on your own. You need other believers around you. We need one another. We need to be grace-filled dependents. For in the body of Christ, then, as we're doing this, We can have care for one another, he writes in verse 25. And then he goes on and says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You know, I was reminded, we're coming up on the anniversary of the death of a young one in our congregation. A year ago. And it's sad and it's tragic. And my heart mourns when I think about it. I was talking to one of the family members earlier today as we were thinking about this passage. And uh, he said to me, I don't know, I don't know how we could have done this without the church. I don't know how we could have gotten through this past year without the church depending on one another, without them coming alongside of us and suffering with us. Friends, we are called, unity in Christ calls us to live in dependence upon one another because ultimately that's how we grow. You don't have to suffer alone. You don't have to be alone. You know, after our deacon's breakfast this past week, I was a bit curious about this candidate's stuff the Unite for a Better America. And I saw his, you know, I saw his advertisement. I mentioned that. So I did a little digging and I found this vision statement on on a website. Here's what the vision statement said. We're in a battle for the soul of America. 
It's time to remember who we are. We're Americans, we're tough and resilient. We choose hope over fear, science over fiction, truth over lies, and unity over division. Unity over division. We treat one another with dignity, we leave no one behind, and we give hate no safe harbor. We are the United States of America, and together there's not a single thing we cannot do. Friends, may I suggest to you this morning that something far greater than the soul of America is at stake right now? Can I suggest to you that it's time for the church to remember who she is? And may I suggest to you that what really is at stake is the advancement of the gospel, that there are people, souls, actual people that are at stake? And may I suggest to you that our unity and our witness are directly tied to our unity, uh, to our witness for the gospel. Let me say that again. May I suggest to you that our unity and our witness are tied together. In fact, so closely linked that in the days just before Jesus suffered and died on the cross, he prayed for our unity and listen to his prayer. This is in John 17, if, if you wanted to write it down or turn there. And I'm gonna close with this. Jesus prays this for us. He says, I do not ask for these only. He's talking about his disciples. He's praying for them. And now he says, I do not ask only for these, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, so that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may become perfectly one. So that, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Friends, the witness, the testimony of the gospel, our evangelism, our seeing the world, seeing our unbelieving friends, our unbelieving family members, seeing those in far places and near places, seeing them come to a truth a true knowledge and a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ is directly related to how unified we are as a people of God. Would you think about that before you get really upset with someone because they disagree about a particular thing that you might put on their face or because of a political candidate that someone might subscribe to? Would you think about that before you think, I can't be even around that person when that person's a brother or sister in the Lord. You see, God, by his sovereign grace, has called us, saved us, and adopted us into this community of Jesus followers. He has saturated us with his spirits by giving us gifts and bearing fruit through us. He has made us beautifully diverse, and he calls us to live grace-filled, dependent lives. And this, dear friends, is true unity. And this, dear friends, is how the world will know that Jesus came to save people from their sins. Would you pray with me? Father, help us not only to speak of unity, but to live uni unified lives. Help us, we pray, 
to consider the gospel, to consider the testimony that we are giving. Lord, I pray that we can share our opinions with grace and with humility. And I pray that we would receive those that differ from us with grace and with humility. And I pray, oh God, that we might seek to live for the good of one another, for the good of others in our world, and for the glory of Christ, so that the world may know that you sent Jesus and you loved even while we were still sinners. We love you, O Lord, and we praise you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.